Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series. I am Amy Zahmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I'm going to be chatting with Jamie Cranozzi about neuroplasticity and synaptic reconnections after brain injury. This episode is brought to you by the Functional Neurology Center, a Minneapolis-based clinic staffed by a caring and progressive team of functional neurologists who are experienced in treating post-concussion syndrome, chronic pain, dizziness, whiplash, and migraines. They are the concussion doctors you can trust for comprehensive brain health in the Midwest. They've greatly helped me and many others. You can find them online at mnfunctionalneurology.com. Hello, I am Amy Zellmer, and you're listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury, one podcast at a time. Those of you who might not know who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February of 2014. I'm a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Goodman Project, and I volunteer on the Brain Injury Association of America's Advisory Council. And my second book, Embracing the Journey, Moving Forward After Brain Injury, recently received a silver medal in the Midwest Book Award. You can learn more about me and the podcast at facesoftbi.com, and also be sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer, and also don't forget to join my Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe, to connect with other survivors, caregivers, and loved ones. Today's guest is Jamie Crane-Mosey, and I am very excited to have her here today. Jamie grew up on the East Coast skiing since she could walk. By the time Jamie was 18 years old, she had won junior world championships in New Zealand and moved to Utah to become a professional slope style and half-pipe skier. Jamie traveled the world competing at world-class events like the X Games and the Dew Tour. Jamie crashed through glass ceilings by becoming the first woman to flip off a rail and double backflip in a competition. In 2015, Jamie crashed in Whistler and went into a coma. She lived, recovered, went back to skiing and adventuring in the world, bringing a unique, inspiring story with her. Jamie was the first patient in North America to receive an oxygen and pressure analyzing brain bolt procedure at Vancouver General Hospital. VGH continues to use the procedure on critical coma patients, and their success rate has been more than doubled. Her doctors learned about the brain bolt procedure one month prior to Jamie's arrival at VGH. So without further ado, I'm so excited to welcome Jamie. Welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on the show. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm excited to hear more about this brain bolt, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but it sounds really interesting. It's something I had not heard of before, so... I'm excited to hear about it. So, Jamie, why don't you just give us a little bit, I know we covered a little in your bio, but a little bit of your background and, you know, what happened with your injury. Yeah, I will definitely do that. So, what happened was I, as you said in the bio, was a professional skier in slope style and half pipe. Slope style is multiple jumps and rails, and you get judged on the overall impression. 
And then half pipe is you ski down half of a tube made out of snow, and you go up and you do tricks, and then you ski down and go up and do tricks. And I was actually competing at World Tour Finals in Whistler, Canada, um, and my first run, I got fourth place. Now, you might think that's pretty good, but for me, I'm pretty ambitious, and fourth place <laughs> did not cut it, right? You know, sometimes you want to get on that podium, which is only first, second, or third. So yeah. I had to upgrade. Yeah, so I changed my off-axis backflip to an off-axis double backflip for the second run, and I'd been competing that since the 2013 X Games uh, double flip. Um, this was like a new version of it, but I had landed it the day before multiple times and seemed pretty comfortable with it. And I actually landed on my feet and I slightly under rotated, which means I didn't land completely upright, but I was a little bit bent in the chest and I caught an edge on snow and I whiplashed my head onto the snow and my brain started bleeding in eight spots and I hurt my wow. right brainstem, which completely paralyzed my right side. Yeah, and so then Jeannie, I went into a coma. How old were you when this happened? I was 22. Yeah, so real young. And do you remember the crash, or is it like you remember it from video and people's testimonial? I just, I have no memory of yeah. the day of the crash. Like that whole day, I don't remember like waking up or going to train or my first run or anything about that day. Um, and I don't remember like actually like a month and a half after, because after wow. I woke up from the coma, I had serious amnesia. And so no memory of that time, but I do remember like a few days before the accident. Like I remember the day before the day of the accident, but it's interesting because I remember it as if it was a long time ago. I mean, now we're getting on, like, like, we've gone through three years, so it's, like, been some time. But even when it was, like, a month, or, like, I didn't remember at a month, but, like, three months, and, and I could remember that time at, like, about three months, it felt like it was, you know how you have memories of your childhood? Yeah. You can, like, vaguely remember, and you can, like, see yourself in your brain, but you're, like, a child, and that was, like, so long ago, but you can, like, vaguely remember it. That's kind of how my memory is for like about a week before the accident. And then it jumps back to being like normal memories of how the time, like the timeline would be. But for like the uh, the few days before the accident, I can vaguely remember them, but they feel like they were like 20 years ago. And I'm 26, so I feel like I was like, a six-year-old. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think I, you're not the first person who said that to me. And, you know, the whole weird thing with brain injury can be that time. Um, oh, what's the word? Um, the processing time. Like, oh, I have two hours to get ready. Cool. And then all of a sudden it's two hours later and you're not ready. Like the whole concept of time can be really like skewed after a brain injury. Um, and I know I had a lot of that in the beginning. Um, and it's just, it's so bizarre, isn't it? Like it's, it's just so strange how our brains work. Yeah. So Jamie, you were taken uh, to Vancouver general hospital and 
you how long were you in your coma? Well, there's a slight debate about whether it's eight or ten days. Um, <laughs> eight days, I, I I I opened my eyes like on command, which means you're out of the coma. But then the ninth day, I didn't open them at all on command. Um, like like me like forcing my eyes open or like like visualizing something. So I was like out of it the eighth day, and then I went back to it the ninth day, and then I went out of it the tenth day, and I was like fully out of it, like forever <laughs> um yeah and so what so was your recovery eight, so 10 what was your recovery as you came out of that coma I know you don't have much memory of it but I'm sure people have told you <laughs> um so yeah. how how long you know was your recovery in the hospital and afterwards people have like you said told me a lot of things so for the first like about month a little over a month that I was in the hospital I don't remember, so we can get back to that because I've been told a lot what happened at that time. But then when my mind came back, I was still in the hospital for another – I left the hospital um, actually only a few weeks after my mind was back. Um, so I left it at the end of May, and I arrived um, April 11th, so I was there for like a month and a half. Um, in the hospital but so at the beginning when I was like on the food tube and everything one thing my family did right from the very beginning like I was in the coma still and they believe a lot in holistic medicine and like holistic approaches and so they started um, giving me some cranial sacrum therapy and cranial sacrum massage and what that is is it's where like put your hands and you don't touch someone but you send like energy through your hands um and then they would actually um as soon as they got clear like allowed to um they would move me and from the beginning one thing that was very important um which actually played a role later on um my family didn't really listen to vancouver general hospital Uh, My older sister is a doctor, and my family prescribed her as my medical care, my primary care physician, which you you never have a family member. That's really rare. (laughs) Um, But so she became my primary care physician, and then she made it mandatory that my mom stay when the doctors made the rounds. Because at that time at Vancouver, the doctors, when the doctors made the rounds, the family had to leave. And now they've actually changed the protocol like a year and a half after my accident a year after my accident they changed the protocol and made it so that now at the ICU it's mandatory for family to stay unless they they sign off um, because they've realized how important the communication between the three peers of the patient the caregiver and the doctors and the communication between those three is vital. And sometimes it still struggles in places because the doctors feel um, that they know medically the most about the patient, which they do. They know medically the most, but they don't know if that patient likes to be Robert or Bob. And those right. make a huge difference, how you, how you talk to the patient. And my family would play music and they put up pictures and, they did they were very very involved right from the beginning 
Um, and that made a huge difference. And, you know, that kind of blows my mind that in 2015, they made the family leave the room. Um, I mean, especially with a brain injury, like you don't have any memory, right? So how would you even remember right. anything the doctor told you? Like, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. Good, good for your sister yeah. for making that mandate. Yeah. And my, yeah. And so it was a big, yeah, it was a big thing. And like, especially my mom has a degree in, she has a master's in psychology and her master's was um, helping the psychology aspect of children who had um, development, different development issues. And so it kind of was like what I was experiencing. And so besides um, that the family had to leave making the rounds in 2015, I had some fabulous doctors, fabulous. Like the doctor, um, his name is Mipinder Sakon, and Dr. Mip, I actually call him Miracle Mip. And I interviewed him on my show, um, but I think so highly of him, and he is the he was the head um, doctor to be involved in the brain bolt, and he went to Cambridge, England to learn about it. He's fantastic. But I also had some doctors, and this one was actually a resident, which means he was still in training. I don't remember this, but I've been told this multiple times. And he was still in <laughs> training, and I'm in the coma, right? And so I'm just lying in my room, and he's, like, telling my mom, you know that she's never going to be independent again. She's never going to walk on her own. She's never going to make her own money and live her own life. And my mom was like, do not tell me that in front of my daughter. No. And you don't know if that's the truth. Like, you can't say that you know that she's never going to be independent, and you can't say that you know she's not going to be. You don't know either way right now. Um, so don't don't make an assumption based on – like, he's like, yeah, but there's own statistics. And it's like, yeah, but you can't tell people things because then you're basically. You're setting them up for failure. Yeah. Yeah. Them to do that, which leads into the neuroplasticity aspect of it is because neuroplasticity is rebuilding synaptic connections in your brain. And in order to rebuild those connections after a brain injury, you have to start utilizing and like doing those functions and it's really hard sometimes to start doing those functions like for me my right side was paralyzed and so when stimulators were put on my right arm to make it move for the first time ever um, in the hospital and then I started moving it my mom actually came up with the idea that she would have to tape down my strong hand and make me make breakfast with my weak hand which took an hour and was so difficult and I, like I mentioned at the beginning, was a professional skier, so I love snow. Um, so now I do speaking, uh, public speaking and stuff, and I use the analogy of walking through snow up to your neck because it's so hard to do that. Yeah. It's so hard it almost seems impossible, but it's not. But it becomes impossible if you don't take the first step. I love and that. I love your mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I do, too. But um, – if the first, like, if the doctor is telling you it, it's permanent, 
And then he's telling your caregivers, and your caregivers believe the doctor because he's so smart. You know, he's gone to so much school. Right. And so then they believe the doctor, and then they tell you that, and then they treat you like that. And so instead of kind of guiding you and pushing you towards creating these new synoptic connections and taking these steps, they're like, oh, well, that's her new life. It's her new injury. Like, I have to get used to the fact that Jamie's right hand is never going to work again. Instead of um, have putting me to make those new synaptic connections, you know, if you just, like, treat my hand, arm like it's not never going to work again, then it never is going to work again. So then you're basically creating the – you're pre- preaching what you talked about, but then it's coming true because of the communication surrounding it. You know, I think – we live in a society where we have been cultured to blindly believe our doctors. Like they know everything is sort of what we've been led to believe. And, and that's shifting, that's changing. But, you know, I, and I think when someone's in a more severe, like you were in a coma, I think parents want to be optimistic that their child will wake up and that they will walk again. But someone with a more mild injury, you know, like myself, and then to be told, well, it's been a year, there's nothing we can do. This is just what's going to be, you know, if I would have just chosen to believe that, you know, I'd still be there. Right. And so it's so important to just be your own advocate and seek other answers. You know, your doctor might not be right. And, you know, what is the point in just listening to one doctor Go get second, third, tenth opinions, um, you know. So I think I'm so happy your mom, you know, and your sister were there to advocate for you. And um, not everybody has that, you know. Some parents would just be like, oh, okay, she'll never walk again, um, where yours were not like that. So, you know, I, I want anyone listening to know that there always is hope, no matter how far out from your injury you might be. Um, there is hope that you can get better, you know, like, like Jamie's saying, this neuroplasticity, it's real. <laughs> and it takes, you know, the further out you are, the more work it might take. Um, you know, you might have to tape your arm down like Jamie's mom did. Um, but there's hope and just never lose that hope. Would you agree, Jamie? Yeah, that's it. I totally do, and I love how you said there's there's hope, and you touched on that you can at any time, because that's one of the big things. And so, like if your if your doctor was trained 20 years ago, they might have been trained in medical school that the damages are permanent, and so maybe they heard differently, but they're still like stuck in that mindset. And like I mentioned, I think very highly of some doctors, but doctors are humans too. So some are wonderful, but some are not. (laughs) And just to listen to them because they're a doctor. But with the belief of neuroplasticity at any time, no matter what kind of issue it is, it can be, you can take steps to change it. And like using the, like going back to, my injury again it was really obvious because I was so injured like when my arm couldn't move and then it started to move again that was obvious but that was actually the easiest part of the recovery like the like when I had to relearn I had to relearn how to walk and like go upstairs 
but I had been an athlete. And so with athletes, you know how to set goals and accomplish goals. And I could see what I needed to improve on and I could see it. And so I could just push myself to accomplish those goals. But what was actually the hardest for me was the emotional, the the emotional issues that developed. And those developed later. And quite often they develop with all different forms of brain injury. So they can develop with mild brain injuries too, emotional issues, and it's hard to link them back because they're not as obvious and they're not as clear because it's inside of your brain. So you can't see it as much. And it's harder to deal with because it's harder for you to notice yourself having them and I would have like trig- emotional triggers and it was hard to notice those. And then when I noticed them, it was hard to figure out how I was going to make a change um, with, without being able to like really see it concretely. And, but even with those, um, like if you, if you have issues and you work on figuring out how to make a change and you keep working on it, like now I don't have the same emotional triggers that I used to have. And I was able to get through that and take those steps because I kept working on it. And that's why when people ask me, well, when did you finish healing? It's a very blurred question because just this December, I went to a cognitive boot camp at Cognitive FX in Provo, Utah. And I went there for a week and you do like seven hours a day of cognitive, you do at the beginning a functional MRI, so they do an MRI on your brain to see what brain pathways are still blocked because of the injury, and then you do a boot camp that's tailored to the cognitive exercises that you specifically need. So like for me, I had trouble multitasking, and so I had a lot of exercises that were geared towards multitasking, and so then I would go through that, and then at the beginning, my first functional MRI, there's green, the green zone, which means your brain is compatible and it doesn't really have uh, damages um, or, like, blocked nerve pathways. And then there's yellow, and then there's red, and then I was above the red. So even though I was graduating college with a communication degree and, like, I had gone back to, like, doing, living a pretty awesome life, Um, I still had all these nerve pathways that were blocked because of my injury. And I had, like, made new nerve pathways around them, kind of like a detour. So it was, like, harder and longer to do certain actions. But I could still do them and accomplish them because I had built these roadblocks. But I had to go through the roadblocks, which was harder than just the regular path um, that was still blocked because of the brain injury. And so then afterwards, on my second functional MRI, I was down to the top of the green, and I started crying, and my mom started crying. We weren't really expecting it, but we both were just like, wow. Um, But then, like, that, like, was marked a a point of, like, a different point of recovery. Um, But then there's still, like, little things in my life that I'm trying to improve on and work better at, and it's impossible now to tell if it's because I'm a 26-year-old or because of my brain injury, and I don't think I'll ever be able to tell for the rest of my life if these little things, but my mind has become so open to improving myself and, like, taking steps because I knew I had to take, 
all these steps in my recovery process to create the outcomes that I wanted to. So that mindset I still have, that you can take steps to create outcomes that you want in yeah. life. Yeah, that's a great attitude to have. Um, so I do want to make sure we touch on the brain bolt. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how it works? Yeah, so the brain bolt, um, I learned about it in Cambridge, England. Um, and I know in the bio I said they learned about it a, a year before, but they, I mean a month before, but they actually learned about it a year before. I didn't know this. I thought it was just a month before, but they weren't allowed to use it until a month before. So my injury. And so mm-hmm. a year before my injury, they went to Cambridge, England to learn about this procedure. Um, and what it does is it tests out the ox and so they have used the pressure a lot in um lots of neuroscience that has to do with brain injuries um if you notice they'll like take out part of the skull or something um if the Mm. pressure gets too 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 heavy um and so that's kind of like a common practice um but they haven't really tested out your oxygen level in, from your brain and so they test out your oxygen level on a device that they attach to your finger like you know one of those things you stick your like mm-hmm. pointer finger in and they test out your and so they've done that before but then with a the brain bolt they test your brain's oxygen from a bolt that they drill a little hole in your head and then they insert the bolt and so it's tested from the head and they realize oxygen levels are different I was like on the verge of um, lacking enough oxygen which they realized that that is what causes the permanent brain damage is not enough oxygen um, which is like when kids are born if they don't have enough oxygen they develop um, injuries and so but they have realized that it's the oxygen in the recovery and so they could increase my oxygen level um, when it was getting low. And one day my finger said it was fine, but my brain said the oxygen was lacking. Um, and so then they they increased it. Um, and I don't have any permanent brain damage. And they think one of the reasons why is because they were able to increase it differently on with the brain bolt than with the finger. Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and then one thing, um, so their success rate, they've used it, and the success rate has increased a lot. And one of the things I I actually learned when I was interviewing the doctor, it was so interesting because I learned facts about, like, my injury. (laughs) Um, But he was saying that one of the things that he thinks, besides the technology of the brain bolt, another big reason why the success rate has more than doubled is because of the communication factor that they've changed since my injury between mm, the patients, yeah. the caregivers, and the doctors. Um, and he, he, he's the one who gives a lot of credit to that. And he says that um, 
it's something interesting because a lot of hospitals are so focused on the technology and so they're so focused on increasing the technology and increasing the value of the hospital that they're forgetting about some simple things like the value of the caregivers and the value of the life that you're living in the hospital and some of that kind of stuff and so that's what he pointed a lot out to it. Um, a lot of the success um, he owes to also, besides the um, brain bolt, which um, he thinks also the, the change in communication. Yeah, that's, that's really, really cool. I, I'm glad uh, you shared that. That's, you know, the whole communication aspect is, it's really important. And I don't know if you've ever read the book, um, My Stroke of Insight. And it's written, I, can't, I can never remember her name, um, but it's written by a woman and she shares her journey of having a stroke. And while she's in the hospital, she can't talk and communicate, but she can totally hear and process. And the way some of the nurses treated her, um, you know, like, just the whole communication and just treat, you know, treat people with compassion. You know, there's no need to be rude. And, um, you know, she's like, I could totally hear and understand everything they said to me, but they didn't think I could. So they treated me poorly. Um, so I, you know, just yeah. kind of that whole communication p- part. So yeah, Jeannie, we're almost, is so bad. Yep. Oh, go ahead. I'll let you finish that thought. Oh, I was going to say the communication factor is so important and treating everyone like you would like to be treated regardless of how you think they can understand or comprehend you. Yes. I think everyone survived this one right now. Yeah, there's survivors who, you know, you might think that drunk, right? They slur their words. They're hard to understand. They mumble. Um, and so people assume that they're not smart or that they can't understand, um, but they're totally intellectually fine, right? It's just the output. Um, so don't ever judge a book by its cover, you know. Um, so, Jamie, we are just about out of time, and I just want to ask if you have, you know, any final words for our listeners, some final thoughts, uh, words of advice for everyone listening. Well, I'll just sum up basically what we talked about and how I think a a vital aspect is the communication um, in hospital and outpatient therapy between the caregivers, the patients, and the doctors, um, because the doctors have such valuable wisdom, but sometimes they prescribe things that aren't (laughs) the, the right thing. And so you need to stand up on your own, too. Um, yes. And then believe in neuroplasticity and believe that at any stage you're at right now, if you have things that you want to work on and you have things that you think you can get going, you can do it. Um, no matter how far out of your brain injury you are, just start taking little steps. Um, and if anyone has any questions about anything I mentioned, um, they can email me at mocrazystrong at gmail.com. 
And if you want to, you can follow me on Instagram, Jamie Mo Crazy, and look at my Facebook, Jamie Mo Crazy. And I share a lot of information, and I have a lot to do with the um, with brain injuries as well as Amy, which is so awesome that I got to be on this show because I'm so passionate about spreading a message, which I would imagine um, is part of why Amy does this this um, podcast as well is because the voices of TBI survivors and therapies and doctors, it all needs to be heard. Um, everyone has a brain and it's a very unknown um, subject matter because it's changing so much. So yeah, you mm-hmm. can contact me if you have questions about any of this stuff. Um, and just make sure that you know that you're here and you get to live tomorrow. So enjoy it. You get to live today. So enjoy the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, Jamie, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for being here. And I just wish you um, just so much continued success with sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Um, and again, you can find Jamie on Instagram and Twitter. It's Jamie Mo Crazy. Um, And again, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram as well at Amy Zellmer. And don't forget to join Amy's TBI tribe on Facebook to connect with other survivors and caregivers. And another big thank you to Midwest Functional Neurology Center, the concussion doctors you can trust. Find them online at mnfunctionalneurology.com. Thank you all for listening. And thank you for being a part of my journey. Have a great day, everyone. And I will see you next time.